I'd like to share a really nice email I got from a guy named Wayne in Santa Rosa, California. Wayne says, I've listened to every episode of Thanks for Giving a Damn. Yesterday, as you were doing the outro, I realized for the first time that you were talking to me. I appreciate what you do in order to t-shirt today to put my money where my ears are every Wednesday. Bill Kaufman is such a great storyteller and he has so many unique experiences to share. I thought you set the bar pretty high for yourself from the start. How can Otis find other people even half as interesting as Phil? I thought to myself. Well, all these weeks later, I've heard you interview many great storytellers, and I appreciate your ability to make them feel comfortable enough to share their passions, dreams, and joy. I especially enjoy Brian Henneman, Dan Baird, Gurf Morlix, Bob Olson, and part one of Billy Bragg, and I'm looking forward to next week. Thank you very much, Wayne, and I appreciate everybody who's taken the time to send me a nice email. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee. This is a bit of an experiment. This is a personal journal. And I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. And this is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Nan Warshaw. Nan is the co-founder and co-owner of Bloodshot Records, and I'm willing to bet that they've put out quite a few of the records that are in your record collection right now. You can find out everything you need to know about Nan at bloodshotrecords.com. I met up with Nan in Austin, Texas. I'd just driven from Nashville to Austin. It was a 12 and a half hour drive, and then we met up at her hotel room there in Austin. I was a little bit worn out and haggard from the drive, but uh, I think we had a really nice conversation, and it was good to see Nan and catch up. Here's Nan Warshaw. Well, I went to the Evergreen State College uh, for undergrad, and it's an alternative state school in Olympia, Washington, and my undergraduate degree was just a Bachelor of Arts. Uh, I studied everything from modern European history to arts, entertainment, media management. Did you have anything in particular in mind that you were going to go into with that degree? Not not as an undergrad. I just wanted to get a well-rounded liberal arts education at a school I liked, and that school ended up being perfect for me at the time. And uh, Evergreen was a pretty unique place then. It was still a hippie school, and me and my friends were the first punks there. And these days, it's kind of, I mean, it's still a hippie school, but it's also punk rock you and after I left is when Courtney Love was there and uh, a bunch of other people. But my first year at Evergreen was um, the same year that Calvin Johnson from K Records was his first year there. And um, and Bruce Pavitt, uh, who started you know, Sub Pop, was already a townie there at the time. 
So it was, it, it turned out to be pretty influential, I think, on how I ended up where I am today. Were you making, doing zines or anything like that back at that time? Or? Um, I was, I, I wrote some columns for a couple zines, but I wasn't making them myself, but I was really involved in the local music scene, booking um, all ages shows in the dorms and arranging shows. And I mean, I convinced the, um, the college to let us use this old firehouse that wasn't being used that we could use the bands could use it as a rehearsal space and that they wanted to burn the firehouse down as a as a practice for the firemen and i convinced them to let us use it uh and they let us use it for like two years and then they burned it down but we at least got <laughs> two years out of it where we had rehearsal spaces for the bands on campus because we were always getting busted rehearsing in our dorm rooms and uh, I, and in college, I was in three different punk rock bands that all pretty much sucked, but it was fun, and I learned. I, I think I learned a lot playing in the bands, but one of the things I learned is that my talents don't lie in the performance side, and that I'm much better in the organizational side supporting the bands. After I finished high school, I took two years off, and um, one of them I spent just traveling around the country. And so when I was doing that, I spent like three months in San Francisco. And so that had to be, let me think, uh, 1979, 80. And I went to what was really probably my first serious punk rock show, um, and it was at the People's Temple in San Francisco, and it was the Dead Kennedys, the Offs, the Plugs, the Members, and like four other bands. But, you know, I, I mean, I went to see the Dead Kennedys, and it was, it was an eye-opening experience, and, and the punks back then were pretty ruthless. I mean, it was all, and perhaps they were just mimicking the British punks at the time, um, but they were spitting on the band and throwing bottles and and being really, you know, somewhat violent and and rude to the band. And I remember watching Klaus Floride get just popped on the head with a beer bottle and almost knocking him over. I mean, he's a little thing to begin with, and um, and they didn't stop playing. And so. And and there were lots of people pogoing and some people slam dancing and that was the first time I'd seen slam dancing, you know. But it, you know, there was something about it that attracted me. Certainly the music, but also the scene, even though it was a bit much for me at the time. You know, the first time I saw something like that, you know, before it was common. Well, when you say people's temple, do you mean Jim Jones? Yeah, yeah. And so it was the old Jim Jones church or temple, <laughs> and they turned it into a punk rock club because no other religious institution wanted to use it after Jim Jones' people all killed themselves. He's from Indianapolis. We don't claim him there either. 
Well, I was DJing um, a punk rock. Uh, I was DJing a country night in a punk rock bar uh, called Crash Palace, and today it's called Delilah's. And uh, Rob started was hanging out there with some friends, and he was too shy to come up and make requests. So he'd send his best friend up to make requests. And I soon learned that it wasn't his friend making the requests because I'd say, oh, I don't have that. How about this? And he'd say, hang on, I'll be right back. And he'd go back, ask Rob, what about this or this? And then he'd come back. And <laughs> and so Rob was too shy or socially retarded, whatever you want to call it, Um or maybe he lazy and just send his friend up to make the request. I'm not sure. But anyway, so so Rob and I met that way because he was a serious um, traditional country music fan. Or, and, and at that time, I say traditional, you know, what was, um, you know, edgy country was, you know, the traditional stuff and whatever roots music had a real edge to it. And so he was making great requests and we became friends that way and just started talking about all the bands that were hanging out at my DJ night and also in the scene around Chicago. And there, so there was a number of bands playing in the underground rock scene in Chicago that had a thread of some kind of roots running through their music. And we started identifying them. And I mean, just sitting around, you know, making notes on cocktail napkins came up with like 20 of these bands and said, hey, we could make a compilation of these bands. And so, and we had a third partner when we started uh, who worked at a, at a folk label in town. And so he had some resources that we didn't. Um, but really, we each, the three of us, each just put in $2,000. And that's how we started it. And after the first record, uh, For a Life of Sin, Insurgent Chicago Country, after that was out six months or so, we broke even. And we're like, wow, hey, we could do another record. <laughs> and so the first few years, it really was like that one record would break even and we'd say hey what should we do next but we did have the foresight to to pretend we were a real label early on even before we thought there was any um before we dared think it was anything serious and so we we made ourselves look professional in you know, to press, retail, and radio, and, you know, had really well-written press releases and, and focused on good writing and and creating an image and identity for ourselves, one that was something that we were comfortable with and that made sense to us and had nothing to do with commercial um music business and and people keep asking us about um country and and country radio and the history of country music and really we were pretty oblivious to country i mean we were just punk rockers um who had discovered american roots forms and 
they spoke to us. And so we came at it from that side. And so in many ways, we weren't rebelling against Nashville. We were um, pretty much oblivious to what was going on there. Were you living in your own little bubble where you didn't really know? Um, Yes, we were certainly in our own little bubble, but we were also deeply immersed in in the underground punk and rock scene in Chicago and really nationally or internationally. And so we were quite aware of um, the cutting edge, you know, great underground bands around. And so the bands that drew our attention were playing the same, you know, underground and dirty little punk rock clubs. I mean, we were... You know, we saw the Bad Livers in Killbilly um, at Lounge Axe. And, um, and Rob came from Michigan, and so he had a bunch of other bands that he'd seen there that, it, you know, that made him, um, you know, discover American roots forms within edgy rock, I guess I'd say. Oh, we were seriously naive. I mean, we, I don't think we were more naive than most people doing what we did, but we also didn't um, come at it from a music business perspective. And so the ways we, um, the, the things we did wrong, I mean, we were just way too trusting and, you know, our our first releases were all handshake deals, and um, you know we got screwed on a number of those. And um, and then you know even when we did have a contract, you know it was super short. And every you know every time we're screwed, we have to add a new paragraph to the contract, and that's why <laughs> it's a few pages long now. Um, but, uh, how else, you know, there were plenty of times and ways we, we got screwed and made mistakes, but I don't know that they're different than that different than other people's experiences. You know, we had distributors go belly up on us a number of times and, um, but I think it was our hands on approach that saved us too. I mean, we had one distributor that went belly up and they were in the Chicago suburbs and, you know, we had good relationships with the people working there and they told us, oh, whoever it is is coming in now to secure the grounds because they're declaring bankruptcy. And, and so we just borrowed a van and drove out to the facility and we they weren't supposed to let us in but they collected up as much of our stock as they could and gave it to us gave it back to us you know it was our stock that wasn't paid for yet and so it didn't end up in receivership and we didn't have to fight to get it back and we were one of the few labels that actually got our stock back because we just drove out there right away and and grabbed it um but things like that you know um, we had we've had European dis- distributors go belly up where we didn't get anything back, and I mean, but those are pretty typical problems for indie labels. Um, well, what were some of the things that you feel like you did right when you look back at it? We've always been frugal, and we've never had outside investors. 
um, we started with, you know, a couple grand each and never had brought in outside investors to whom we'd have to be accountable. And therefore, we could make the decisions that we felt were the right ones and not necessarily the have to focus on any short-term gain. We didn't have to make money for someone else. They didn't, you know, other people, an investor would expect us to be profitable, and we didn't have that hanging over our heads. And so the only kind of um, weight uh, in terms of feeling obligated, the only real obligations we had to make money are to our artists and our staff. And that is um, something where, where it does, you know, keep us up at night because it's a serious commitment, but at least we aren't expected, you know, th there's no third party. We have no outside obligations, and I think that was a smart move. And probably not smart in a traditional business sense because, you know, if you have a big cash investment, you can grow quicker and 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 start and be a startup that develops faster. But that was never our goal. And so everything we've done has always happened organically. And I think that's um, been a big part of helping us continue and just enabling our longevity. Well, and, and, easy, and artists that are easy or hard, some are incredibly easy in some ways and then frustrating in others. I mean, um, plenty of our artists today turn in finished records, and our input is minimal. Um, and maybe, you know, we discuss sequencing and the artwork. But then early on, we were much more involved in the recordings, and Rob produced a lot of them, although he never took a production credit. Um, so, it, but, but today it really depends on what the artist wants and needs, how involved we are in the process. I mean, someone like John Langford and Waco Brothers and Pine Valley Cosmonauts and Skull Orchard, we have rarely... Um, had any input into their recording occasionally, maybe on sequencing, but probably not much. Um, and so that's easy in that, you know, we get handed a finished record that we usually think is fucking brilliant. And early on, it was, it was one of the things that really defined Bloodshot was the Waco brothers and what they created. And they knew what we were about better than we did. Um, but then, you know, at the, at the same time, when you get so comfortable and, and have been working with an artist that long as, you know, now we've been working with uh, the Waco brothers and John Langford's other projects for 19 years, um, there can be too much familiarity that means you assumptions and, you know, John will 
uh, hand us a record that we didn't know was coming sort of thing. And, <laughs> and, and so is that easy or hard? Well, then you're working to keep someone happy and schedule a release date that you weren't expecting, that sort of thing. Rob has a great Ryan Adams story, and I'll just give the briefest part is that they met at um, a South by Southwest old 97s concert. Well, it was, I guess, our, our showcase, and the old 97s were playing, and Rob was in, and Ryan was about to play, or Whiskey Town was about to play, and uh, Rob was in the bathroom throwing up in the stall next to Ryan. <laughs> and my understanding is they were both throwing up because of nerves. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Did it end well? Yeah, they they did well and um, you know, and we developed a great relationship back then and and um, got to put out Heartbreaker. I do have um, fond memories of uh, when Whiskey Town was uh, being courted by major labels. They were touring, and they stayed at my house most of the times they came through Chicago. And they were staying at my in in my apartment this time when the major labels were whining and dining them. And Ryan said, "Come with us to dinner." And so I went with them to dinner and got to hear this, you know, major label A&R idiot tell them, we, we'll make you the next Green Day. <laughs> and, and the whole band is, is interviewing these people seriously. And Ryan just got up and walked out of the restaurant. And I don't know that he got up specifically because of that comment, but he got up and walked out and everyone's just like uh, freaking out because... Ryan shouldn't have left in the middle of this, you know, important meeting. But in hindsight, he probably just as well that he did because those wouldn't have been the right people for them to sign with anyway. Um, I found it really insanely frustrating that the bands I work with don't have access to affordable health insurance. And I can't, you know, as a as a label owner, our bands are not our employees, and so we have no way to offer health insurance options even to our band. Even if we don't pay for it, we have no way to offer it to our artists. And I've, you know, looked into many different options, and we it's not something we can do because we, although we pay our artists, they get paid royalties. They're not employees. They're not even independent contractors, not that we could offer that if they were. But... And then I've, you know, I've had artists, um, you know, hospitalized from accidents on the road. Had a, we've had a couple of artists die who possibly could have survived had they had good health insurance. And so, I've, I've been quite um, passionate and working hard politically to pass some kind of health care reform and to work towards it. And so I was involved with Moms Rising, and um, and they were talking to um, working with the White House, developing their website for healthcare reform, 
and I was asked if I would uh, represent the state of Illinois in their 50 states on the White House website for healthcare reform, and I was happy to do it. And so I was one of the small businesses represented there. And then because I was featured on the White House website for healthcare reform, I ended up getting an invite to the White House um, for a, a tour of the White House when it was decorated for Christmas uh, like two years ago. And the invitation I got was for myself plus three guests. And so I brought my partner, Mark, my son, Finn, and my mom. And my mom is um, extremely political and has, you know, she was an alderman and worked a city council person in out just outside of Chicago for years. And she's, you know, run all sorts of political campaigns. And so anyway, she was an obvious person to bring in because I knew she'd appreciate it. So it was a family trip, and we got to go on. It was a self-directed tour of the White House, so I think it was all the other people who, in that group, that were um, on the offered who were who were included on the White House website for healthcare reform, and um, so we didn't get to meet anyone, um, any politicians or elected officials or anything while we were there, but we got to walk through the White House and see it and. Um, it was pretty incredible, uh, you know, see Dolly Madison's candlesticks and the the East Room where Kennedy and Lincoln had laid in state. And, um, you know, it was it was pretty amazing. And, you know, take took pictures of, you know, of my kid in the White House and my mom and, you know, and all of us standing in it. And, uh, it, it was really neat. When, when Bloodshot was three years old, you know, people said, what will you be doing for your fifth anniversary? And we said, I can't even imagine we'll be there. And, you know, every time I'm asked, you know, what will Bloodshot be doing in five years? I don't have a good answer. I mean, hopefully working with great artists and and getting to put out more brilliant releases and um doing what we love, but, you know, I, I'm shocked pleasantly that we're approaching our 20th anniversary and that we've had a run of over 200 releases. Over 200? Yep, over 200. How could, you, you surely couldn't see that coming way back when. No, no, I never saw it coming until we got <laughs> into the, you know, 190s. Well, how many a year... We typically put out about 12 releases a year. Okay. Um, usually, I mean, pretty much one a month, it, you know, on average. We did start around the same time as No Depression, and they coined the term um, alt-country around the same time we coined the term insurgent country, and then Within a couple of years, that was a straitjacket we were fighting for years, and I think finally escaped from, um, or or mostly did, or did where it matters, um, and I think that that might have been 
one of the few things we did too well was create an identity for ourselves. But we had to distinguish ourselves from commercial country then because certainly if the the C word at college radio um, would turn off everyone. And so if you said the word country, no one would listen. And so we really had to uh, create some kind of identity for what we were doing. And, and it, in the long run, it worked. And then um, at that time, the other labels we were modeling ourselves after were really, um, you know, touch and go was a huge influence for us. And, um, and a lot of the, the punk and, um, and underground labels at the time, um, amphetamine, reptile, alternative tentacles, but also, um, stacks in Motown in terms of how well they developed an identity. But then, you know, so many of those labels that we respected and, um, and, oh, also like Twin Tone. And I mean, there were a bunch of great labels when we started that are all gone now. And it's rather shocking to think that they're gone and we're still here. I mean, I never would have predicted or expected that. You really have had this nice little reach or impact in certain communities. I'll play in, in Sweden, Norway, in the UK, Ireland, Holland, but different places, and there's always somebody at the show with a Bloodshot T-shirt. And, uh, that's sweet. That's a, it's a really strange thing, but this thing that happened, you know, probably over a dinner table in Chicago amongst friends could have this kind of a reach. I mean, it's it's wonderful. It's flattering. Um, but it's also, you know, due to the artists and their hard work and their hard touring. I mean, they've, you know, most of our artists today are touring over 150 dates a year. And that's not an easy life. <laughs> and and I give them, you know, all the credit for for doing that and for making it work and for making great records. I mean, we continue to do this because it continues to move us and and it's being able to make a difference in in the careers of these artists that I love and respect. That's that's what it's all about. I appreciate you uh meeting with me here in this hotel room yeah thanks for coming by here so i didn't have to go anywhere in, <laughs> in this lovely super eight motel <laughs> a little free commercial for him there thank you i'd like to thank everybody for listening in and i'd like to thank nan for Meeting up with me at the hotel room in Austin, Texas. And you can find out everything you need to know about Nan at bloodshotrecords.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. 
If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there. You'll get a brand new episode every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.